Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR Network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all of the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your favorite podcast app. And we're not stopping there, as we'll soon be announcing additional programming and content partnerships to make membership an absolute must-have. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MAY2022 at checkout to gain access to all of our exclusive benefits for just $5 per month. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from beautiful Cambridge, Massachusetts. I am joined today by Rosa Brooks, who holds the Scott K. Ginsburg Chair in Law and Policy at Georgetown University Law Center, where she also serves as the Associate Dean for Centers and Institutes. How are those Centers and Institutes, Rosa? Well, Centers and Institutes are awesome, David. I kind of knew they would be. a very important responsibility of mine. It really is. And uh, Ed Luce is also joining us, who's the U.S. National Editor and Columnist at the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hello, David. Hello, everyone. And we are joined today, uh, and I'm delighted to say, by Sheila Smith, Sheila is the John E. Merrow Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. How are you doing, Sheila? I'm well, David. Thank you. And hello to everybody. Delighted to be with you. Well, it's really great to have you here because, of course, there's a lot of news going on in Asia, some of it somewhat confusing since the United States, for example, seems to be espousing different positions simultaneously. But... uh, Rather than zero in on one thing or another, you've watched the president's trip to Asia, which has included a trip to South Korea, to Japan, meeting with the heads of the Quad, a meeting over our kind of lightly baked economic area that we're talking about. What's your reaction? 
I think all the headlines are interesting. I think it's been a good trip. You know, in Seoul, we have a new president who's just been inaugurated. And so I think it was a good start uh, to the president's visit to the region to get to know President Yoon and also to, you know, reassert extended deterrence on the peninsula as the North Koreans once again are revving up tests, missile tests, and perhaps even we're about to have a a nuclear test again. The Japan piece, as you know, is is a little bit my bailiwick. And so I was I was heartened to see the U.S.-Japan conversation go well. Prime Minister Kishida, I'm sure, was very, very happy with all that the president had to say also about reaffirming extended deterrence and the, the U.S. obligation to assist in Japanese defenses. And, you know, Prime Minister Kishida has been working very closely with the Biden administration on the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine and coordinating via the G7 as well. So they also had a lot to talk about there. The Quad meeting is the most recent one. Interestingly enough, Indian Prime Minister Modi is the old boy, so to speak, in the room. Everybody else has had a regime change, has had an election since the Quad got started. But um, yeah, this was this was the Australian Prime Minister's first day on the absolutely. job, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, literally, he signed the, you know, so swore in as Prime Minister and got on the plane to go to the Quad meeting. And so, and reaffirmed that Australia's position with China, I believe he said, this is a difficult relationship for us, but reaffirmed his commitment and Australia's commitment to the Quad, which I think was very positive. So. Lots going on. We can talk more about the details, but I think the president comes back with a fairly successful trip. Excellent. Rosa, what do you think of all that? I agree with everything Sheila said. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I actually do think uh, in all seriousness that this is basically looking like a, a win for President Biden. I think that to use an overused phrase that I apologize in advance for using, it is amply demonstrated the U.S.'s ability to walk and chew gum at the same time. I think the big fear with the with the war in Ukraine was that the U.S. would be so distracted by that crisis that the administration would not have the bandwidth left to spend any time whatsoever thinking about Asia, thinking about the the fabled pivot. But I think they've, they've done a really quite impressive job of, of, of actually saying it's not a pivot, that these things are complementary. I mean, I think that was the argument that uh, our friend Kurt Campbell was making, that in fact, the shoring up of our Pacific alliances and the shoring up simultaneously of many of our European alliances do in fact work together to, we hope, deter both further Russian aggression and potential Chinese aggressive actions. You know, I, as ever, I think it, it, I think this is treacherous territory. I don't think anybody other than by accident, is going to be 100% sure that they can predict correctly what is going to happen in the future. But I think that they're they're doing as good a job as anybody could. And Biden is doing all the right things. And of course, the thing that uh, garnered the most news so far was the president of the United States said, we will defend Taiwan, which sounded like strategic ambiguity was in the rearview mirror and that we were going to step up and then quickly was uh, clarified from folks in the administration that what he meant was the ambiguity was clarified. Yes. Yeah, so it was like, well, let's put some more ambiguity back into that. And then said, you know, kind of sort of what I meant was kind of sort of like Ukraine, like we'll give them weapons and stuff like that. What do you think of all that, Ed? Yeah. I mean, it's that that stops me from echoing the view that this is a unmixed success, this trip. I mean, Biden's made this mistake now so many times and he's used the word commitment. So it isn't just a sort of blurry words he's using. He's used the word commitment to Taiwan, which is precisely what isn't there under for the last 50 years, you know, under the Shanghai communique and under the. Well, you know, you know, you know, Ed, what men are like. 
they're really uncomfortable with commitment. But not President Biden, bless him. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I'm happy to segue on to the nature of marriage, <laughs> if, if, you, if you wish. Uh, if you're Chinese, you've got, to, you've got to be wondering, you've got to be wondering whether this is just Biden not understanding the nature of America's relationship, the one China policy and the nature of um, America's defense commitments to, to Taiwan rather than mutual obligations, or whether he is deliberately rewriting strategic ambiguity over and above the heads of everybody advising him and his official policy. And I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I know that there is no important answer being searched for in Beijing right now. They're, they're going to be really, really puzzled by this. And although I don't think, you know. What is the essence of strategic ambiguity, Ed? Well, that, that's also the essence of complete confusion coming out of Washington. Is there a difference? Uh, you know, it fits both of those. And strategic ambiguity would be a very posh phrase for yes. complete confusion. Well, that, that's that. Um, <laughs> well, um, Sheila, Sheila, when you assessed this, you, you sort of gave it a positive assessment and you didn't really dwell on this. Do you think this is uh, all a, a kerfuffle or is Joe Biden taking us to new levels of maximalist ambiguity. So I'm tending to think that, you know, this is the third time by my count, there may have been more, but I think this is the third time he has used this kind of language. And I think sitting, he, he was coming off of conversations with Prime Minister Kishida and sitting in Tokyo for me, I, that mattered because what I think he was trying to do is a perhaps signal to Beijing but I think he was also trying to reiterate what he probably privately had a conversation about with Prime Minister Kishida. And that is what he did say after the unambiguous yes to the answer to the question was the use of force by Beijing against Taiwan would dislocate the region. In other words, it has consequences beyond the specific relation, the U.S.-China relationship or the China-Taiwan relationship, that this would upend the strategic order, the security order in, in the region. And I think that comes off of, from the U.S.-Japan perspective, that's probably what he was just listening to. I'm not saying he, he says whatever the prime minister wants him to say, but I think it matters that he said it in Tokyo when he said it coming off of a conversation with our closest ally, with whom we are trying to get greater clarity, not ambiguity, but clarity on what would happen and how would Japan and the United States respond should the force be used by Beijing. So I think there's a little balancing act that may have been going on there with the alliance, Interesting quote from a conservative within the Liberal Democratic Party, the ruling party in Japan, uh, more conservative than the prime minister, by the way, was that was a very advantageous slip of the tongue for us. You know, so I think for the Japanese, they, fe they felt in a way somewhat reassured by the, if it was the slip of the tongue or whether it was deliberate. Uh, I think they felt like, aha, so the president gets it. Rosa, as the quad meeting was taking place. There was uh, apparently um, an exercise involving the Chinese and the Russian Air Force together. I think that which, was a coincidence, David. It was yeah. maybe just same place, no. same time kind of thing. One of those things where yeah, it's like, I mean, yeah, that happens. Fancy meeting you here. Right. <laughs> Backfire bomber or whatever the kind of bomber uh, was. Do you think they were trying to make some kind of a point? Well, that's my question for you, Rosa. Do you? <laughs> You never know, but it is a possibility. I will, uh, you know, I, and it's not a particularly ambiguous statement on their end, obviously. I, you know, I, I, I going back to first going back to this strategic ambiguity, I don't think Biden thinks that he makes gaffes. 
you know, I think Biden says what he what he thinks. And from his perspective, I mean, what do I know? Right. I'm, I'm now projecting I'm now projecting motivations onto Biden that he may or may not actually have. But my sense of it is that Biden says the things he thinks are the right things. And sometimes that is not what his aides think are the right things. But I don't think Biden says guiltily as he walks off stage. Oh, my God, guys, I totally forgot. We're not supposed to say that. I think Biden walks off stage and says, that's what I think, you jerks. Deal with it. And if you want to go and now sort of say, oh, well, you know, actually, he sort of meant kind of something ever so slightly different, but not really, but sort of go for it. But I said what I think. I, that, that's my sense of him. I, you know, I, I think he means it, which doesn't mean, obviously, that whoever comes after Biden takes the same view. It doesn't even mean that if China were to invade Taiwan tomorrow, that, that the U.S. would necessarily respond militarily. All kinds of things could get in the way of Biden's commitment that he appears to have just made, you know, that, that nothing is certain. But that being said, I, 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 think, I think he said it because he believes it. I think he said it because that is his current intention. Whether that has a salutary effect on uh, Chinese appetite for, for challenging West or not, ultimately remains to be seen. Obviously, the joint exercises with Russia make it quite clear that China, along with Russia, feels quite threatened by what the U.S. is doing. And again, I, I don't know. That may not be a bad thing, right? I, I don't think the Chinese... Well, okay. So I said this about Vladimir Putin, right? And boy, was I wrong, right? I said, I said, Vladimir Putin is not an idiot. There's no advantage to him in invading Ukraine when he can sort of nibble away uh, and probably get what he wants that way over a slightly longer time period. And boy, was I wrong. So I will advance this with great humility. But I... I am inclined to think that the Chinese are not quite that self-destructive, are not looking to get into a fight with the U.S. directly, that they will take what Biden said seriously, that they will, for face-saving reasons, need to say, hey, you know, we're tough too, you know, we, our muscles are really big, but that it may actually remind them that, you know, this is not a fight that they want to pick. And so I, I hope, I hope. So, Ed, you've written recently on the U.S.-China relationship and what's in it, what's missing from it, thought very thoughtfully. And it's one thing to say, well, the administration message is confused, but let's pick sides here. If you were going to err in the direction of we are not going to defend Taiwan or in the direction of we are going to defend Taiwan, where would you come out? Oh, I'd, I'd add towards we would defend Taiwan. I, I mean, at a very minimum, I'd add towards what the policy has always been, which is China cannot know what the response would be, and that should cause it to be far more careful in its calculations than it would otherwise be. But if, if I had to tilt, you know, if somebody put a gun at my head, well, first of all, I'd do what the person with the gun at my head wanted me to do. Right, right. But second, um, <laughs> I would, um, you know, I would tilt more towards defending a, a Taiwan. I would most of all do what I think has been happening more which is to enable Taiwan to rapidly learn the lessons of what's happening in Ukraine in terms of a, a sort of whole of society readiness and in terms of training uh, awareness. You know, and I guess you don't need much help with a Taiwanese national-like feeling because they've got that. And one has to hope that Xi Jinping is observing this and taking lessons from um, Putin's humiliation in, in, in Ukraine. But, you know, here I think is the sort of great uncounted cost of COVID 
is that the isolation we've seen of leaders like Xi Jinping and Putin, the lack of contact with the outside world, the lack of their underlings' contact with the outside world, is, I think, exacting a toll in terms of the quality of their decision making. So we can only hope, you know, that whatever the outcome of or the intent behind Biden's comments, that it's going to help Xi Jinping study more empirically and less ideologically what his calculations exactly are on Taiwan. That's, that's ultimately what we want, we want him to be doing. And we want him to be getting good information, unlike Putin, not bad information. So we should be facilitating that. And if there's a silver lining to Biden's gaff not gaff comments, it might be that. Sheila, Taiwan makes something like 90% of the crucial microchips that the world uses. So while the war in Ukraine is having a devastating effect, and I suspect later this year, as we see that take a toll on global food supplies, we're going to see it as being much worse. There's a kind of, this would shut down the whole economy of the planet effect, shutting down, neutralizing, or damaging Taiwan. How should that figure in the calculus? I think, David, it figures in the it should it must figure in the calculus of Beijing. Again, I can't read Xi Jinping's mind, but it's important for all of us to remember that it's not just our reliance on semiconductors and other kinds of high tech components from Taiwan, but so is Beijing relies on the Taiwanese as well. And I think the integration of China into the Taiwanese economy is something we often overlook when we have these conversations. Um, there's great loss to be had from Beijing for Beijing by using force here, and so. I think it's not necessarily we've gotten, you know, does will she do what Putin did kind of analogy conversations here that make me slightly uncomfortable because there is a, a lot more interdependence both by of China on tai, Taiwan, but also the spillover effects that you noted on the global economy. So any kind of use of force against Taiwan, whether it's the immediate effects of the economic consequences you know, of Taiwan's being destroyed or damaged or the larger consequences, the ripple effects that response to that would have across the global economy, I think you're looking at a very different picture than you are looking at Russia versus Ukraine. And it's just magnitudes different in terms of the economic impact that a, that a conflict, an actual armed conflict would have across the straits. I also think it's important to remember that we are all nervous about Beijing, but Beijing is also going through pretty significant internal pressures. There's been the zero COVID policy that she has kind of backed himself into a corner on, and the the kind of pressures that that is built that that are building inside the country for as a consequence of that. Also, the economy is not doing well, which has long been the mainstay of the CCP's legitimacy and stability of its rule. So there are challenges that she must be facing internally, and and doing anything that's really going to upend its position globally, I think at the moment would not be a, a, a something that would be high on the mind of a rational actor. I will defer to Rosie here. I can't make predictions about she's behavior. Why are you deferring to me as the expert on irrational <laughs> well, well, just because you've made a prediction about Putin's behavior and, and we all think about rational actors. Yeah, we all yeah, think about these in terms of a rational actor yeah. would weigh the pros and cons and then act accordingly. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure that the Taiwan issue is going to be rationally decided. I hope I'm wrong. And, and I, I actually think that this is one of the great lessons to all of us about, about Ukraine. Um, I mean, we had this conversation, I think, with Tom Nichols a few weeks ago. Tom asserted it was the death of realism in, in international affairs. 
and that may be overstating it slightly, but but I think the the point is a very good one that the the presumption of rationality is, if not dead wrong, that we we're, we're thinking of rationality in the wrong terms. That we're thinking of rationality from what we see as the supposedly enduring interests of states, but individual leaders, particularly individual leaders who who, as Ed said, have become more and more isolated from the rest of the world. From their perspective, what is rational may have to do solely with their their own private interests and have very little to do with the interests of their states, making it a better predictor of their actions. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Or their people, for that matter. Right? Yeah. yeah. Right. And on top of all of that, of course, you've got a party Congress in October. So, and and she has dedicated himself to handpicking the replacements so that, you know, he ends up with an entire ruling tier of the party that are sort of in their 40s, going to be around for the next 20 or 30 years, and were handpicked by him. And that's an even higher priority to him. Ed, Thursday, Tony Blinken is going to make a speech. He was supposed to make this two weeks ago, but he got COVID. And uh, the speech is timing is kind of interesting in light of everything that we've just said. He's really going to frame China policy. Uh, My deep connections within the State Department, such as they are via an email a little bit ago, said that the focus is to, quote, outline the framework of our overall approach, connecting the dots of the policy, security, economic alliances, and domestic. What would you hope for from this speech by Tony Blinken? Well, I can give you the sort of meretricious journalistic answer straight away that if he doesn't include completely agreed boilerplate language on what Biden means on Taiwan, the media will jump down his throat. So we've got to clear that hurdle before getting on to the bigger framework stuff that you've just outlined, the security, economic and domestic dimensions um, to this. I would hope to see a policy that does two things in this speech, an outlined policy that does two things. One takes us beyond the sort of original formula uh, that we're going to confront, compete, and cooperate, because all we've really seen, and partly this is maybe even mostly in reaction to China, but all we've really seen is the confront. And I have a great fear that that becomes self-fulfilling and it encourages mutual suspicion on each side even less dialogue, you know, if you subtract John Kerry, who's always trying to talk, and I applaud him, by the way, for his um, resilience in sort of flying to China as often as he can and talking as often as he can. But with the exception of Kerry, there's not been much talking going on. Jake Sullivan talks a little bit to his counterpart, but I would like to see something that goes beyond the confront bit of confront, compete, and cooperate. And frankly, confront, compete, and cooperate doesn't really help in its own right, even if they were doing all three equally. It, it just sort of it just sort of covers every possible eventuality. A, a good framework is one that is a little bit more specific. What I would like to see him, amongst other things, do is build on the economic piece of that. I think IPEF, this, this um, agreement that, that Biden unveiled with 12 nations for the region, is better than nothing. Anything's better than nothing. Just um, barely. Let's be honest. Yeah. It's, it, it's really just barely better than nothing. Yeah. It's it's barely better than nothing. I mean, 
We can get into the inside baseball, if you like, about the different camps in the administration on this. And there are two very different camps. You know, one is Catherine Tai, the trade representative with Ron Klain and with Jake Sullivan, that thinks in terms of foreign policy for middle class, which is a fancy way of saying no trade deals. And then the other is more Kurt Campbell, the Treasury Department, Biden himself, if you look at his history, and I think Blinken, which wants to see a lot more economic engagement with the region. What we've come up with as a compromise between these two very differing perspectives is IPEF, which is better than nothing, because at least there's some action. But as you say, not much better than nothing. If Blinken can take us a little bit further on that, I think it would do an enormous service because right now it's it's a guns, not butter approach to the region. And America is signaling, as I think, as I think I wrote, or somebody else wrote, maybe that it only speaks one language. And that's the language. You wrote that, Ed. Yeah, I mean, it might be, you know, all one's great original thoughts are originally some form of plagiarism. So it might have been a conversation I was having with somebody. But that that's got a self-fulfillingness that worries me. This, the national security piece is essential. Don't get me wrong. But if this is going to increase the possibility that we have a cooperate and compete dimension to this great predominant global, global relationship, then there's got to be more economics involved. Sheila, isn't Ed very old fashioned, very 90s thinker? You know, one of these people who thinks that we can engage and talk to the Chinese and that a complex relationship is necessarily complex and we should find carrots as well as sticks. And and isn't the modern way to view this that <laughs> Cold War is inevitable, they're evil, and we should just be fighting them all the time? Well, if I had a gun to my head yeah. and I had to pick which, which one of those visions I would, would lean toward, it would be Ed's version rather than the other one. But but I think what's really important here is we tend to talk about security and economics as if they're two different things. And what China is showing us is that the game, not only in the Indo-Pacific, I would say it goes beyond the Indo-Pacific, but specifically in the Indo-Pacific, is you need both. The power, the currency of power in the Indo-Pacific is not just hard power, it's economic power. And it's economic power that Beijing is now using in a way that we now refer to as coercion, right? Look at Sri Lanka. Look at the meltdown of the Sri Lankan economy. Now, some of that is mismanagement, to be sure, but some of it is a consequence of the debt that the current president in Sri Lanka has incurred as a result of Chinese sweet talking and infrastructure building and ports. And so China is using its economic largesse in the region in a way that we are not. And I'm not saying we should be you know, getting uh, countries of the region into debt traps. I'm simply saying that the United States needs to show up and show up conspicuously on the economic front because China can compete in both hard and hard power and the security side and economic hard power as well. And so I think that's where we've bound our hands. We are not in the game, so to speak. And I think that's what Indo-Pacific economic framework is nice. Japan was very happy to see it be launched because they want us somehow in the game. And so supply chain resilience, digital norms and standards, all these things matter. But without market access and a real hard strategy of how we're going to to think about trade and liberalizing our economy as well as the economies of the region, then we're not offering any incentives to the countries to play ball with us. And we're ceding ground to China. And that may make me sound like your cold warrior, 
But in fact, the vision that Ed prefers is the vision I would prefer too, but I think it's now strategically required that we play that. It's not because we all want to sing Kumbaya and be globalized. It's because the world now, yes, it's complicated, but it's not that complicated, David. It is a question of how we're going to use our strength and influence in a way that will help the rest of the region maintain open economies, maintain to a certain extent free trade, but also investment for our companies, and in the end, help the American consumer. So I I think, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons for why we need a better game on the economic side. And I think countries like, for example, I don't know if you noted, but Prime Minister Lee from Singapore had a wonderful interview in the Nikkei, the Asia Nikkei, in which he said, we will join the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework and we will support China's accession to CPTPP. And so none of these countries who are our friends uh, and partners and strategic partners at that want to have an either or choice. But if we're not there, then they're going to have one choice. And that will be largely uncomfortable for them to have that one choice. And that one choice will be China. By the way, I hope it was very clear that I agree with Ed's point of view uh, (laughs) and that now I agree with Ed and Sheila's point of view. And of course, I want to turn in a moment to Rosa to see if um, she agrees with us or she is wrong. And uh, I will do that. When you say she, I thought you were, you were saying you were implying Xi Jinping. I'm sure no, Xi Jinping. Well, we, we, yeah, Xi Jinping is on the call just she after the break. Too, actually. He, well, I, I would imagine he would. But um, first, we're going to take a break because we always take a break at this point. And we say goodbye to the folks who are listening to the general public. And we say, hang on to the folks who are members who get to hear the rest of it. And if you're not a member, easy thing to do. Just go and sort of roughly for the price of a cup of coffee a month, you become a member and you get lots and lots of bonus content. And and so I encourage you to do that because it helps us do what we're doing. In any event, we'll be back after the break. 